0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sounds Like a Movement podcast. I am your host, CJ Cassiata, and I will just get right into it. I'm interviewing Krista Tippett. Krista Tippett is our guest on this episode. She is a journalist. She's the host and founder and executive producer of one of the most respected podcasts in the world on being. She is also a Peabody Award winner, and she's the author of the new book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of of Living, which is already a New York Times bestseller. For many of us, you know, Krista and what she's created with her show and her writing has really like set the standard for what it means to be a journalist in the age that we're living in. So we get to talk about, you know, what makes social change happen, why movements start small, and if positive journalism is actually possible in our conflict-ridden culture. So let's dive straight into it. Here it is, the interview with Krista Tippett. The tension is the point. It is not to be denied,
1: it's to be sought out. It's the narrative that lets us know we're onto something.
0: When you really can come from a place of vulnerability, when you can come from a place of of friendship and kinship and understanding, I really think our messages come across at a different level and People are then more responsive
1: and open to hearing what we have to say and they feel immediately connected to this thing that we hope will get out into the world.
0: But if you really train your voice, you know, if you really pay attention to the particular, that's, that's where your power is. Art is to remain in that tension yeah. and to tell the truth. I, I mean, I got to tell you, you're, you're, the, you're the interviewer's interviewer. <laughs> I'm not normally nervous about interviewing people but like you, you know you, we we all we all see you as as the master of what you do and you're you're able to really draw out a ton of depth from people so if this is like the Chris Farley interviews Paul McCartney SNL sketch thing <laughs> um I apologize in advance but I'm just saying keep your expectations low
1: <laughs> Well just know that I don't I don't think about myself that way so I I my 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 expectations of myself—we're <laughs> fine. Oh man!
0: Well, thanks so much for for being on the show and thanks for your time. I don't—I don't think I've read a book in a long time where not one solitary word is wasted at all. I mean, there's no filler in this thing, whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's one of those rare books where I, I got to read every sentence twice because there's so much meaning packed into each. So. My first question, how long did it take you to write this book, and what was the process like?
1: It was, it was such a hard thing to write. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I thank you so much for saying that. and um, it, there's this line of Annie Dillard, she says, uh, she, sa- she it was about her in her book, "The Writing Life," And she said, uh, that writing at its best is like any unmerited grace. That you break your back, your heart, your brain, <laughs> and then, and only then, it is handed to you. And this was so like that. It still feels a little miraculous to me that it's finished, and you know that i that i that it's coherent, and I actually kind of like it. Um, <laughs> but it was. I, I mean, I definitely went through. I, I mean, I was kind of working on it off and on for six or seven years, and. Mm. Um, and I went through so many bad drafts, and I, I do, I do kind of believe that editing is a better part of writing, and yeah. you know, so, so there's there's a lot of care that went into every word, um, but it was a mysterious process.
0: Man, and well, the, the end result is just amazing. Um, so thank you for that. In a culture where, I mean, in in many instances, we seem to be moving really away from text. And, and more towards visuals. I mean, if you think even about the internet, like we went from blogging to tweeting, and now Instagram, and then emojis, which are pretty <laughs> much like our modern hieroglyphics.
1: Right, yeah.
0: You open this book, Becoming Wise, with a manifesto about words.
1: Mm.
0: And you say, and first of all, as a word guy, I can't thank you enough for that. And, and, but you say that this line, the world right now needs the most vivid, transformative universe of words that you and I can muster, and we can immediately begin to start having the conversations we want to be hearing and telling the story of our time anew. The conversations we want to be hearing. Why are words so important right now, Krista Tibbet, in helping us understand each other?
1: Oh, I, I think words are always so much more powerful then we stop to think. Then we stop to realize. Uh, you know, we deal in words all day long, most of us, whatever we do. And uh, you know, words are mighty. Words, words are are words are actions. Words make an imprint on the world. I remember my my. I don't think this was in this was in previous drafts of the book. I don't think it made it in. But I remember one day when my daughter came home from school, she was maybe six or seven, and she said, "Mom, you know that saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right and and that's it. we we we're careless with words. We're, you know creative with words. we're we're reckless. we we take them for granted. Um, but what I what I what I what I know in myself and what I've learned, in so many ways from the conversations I've been in all, across these years is that, you know, the more beautiful our words, the more, the more beautiful effect they have on the world around them. Mm. And, you know, that the form of words that is a question, uh, is a very, very powerful thing that, that, that will shape everything, you know, every, every other word that's spoken after it. Um, mm. uh, and, 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 you know, the intentionality we give to our words matters. The care that we give to them um, comes back to us in care from the world around us. So, you know, I'm just trying to point at something that is so simple and so elemental and so ubiquitous that I think we we lose sight of it. And it's one of our most powerful tools for changing things.
0: It is. I mean, it really stands the test of time. So, you mentioned how you grew up in in Oklahoma in, in the Southern Baptist tradition, and then you went to Brown, where your world really, really opened up. Yeah. And what I'd, lo- I'd love to know is, like, was there was there already an inkling or or a longing as you were preparing to make that transition in high school, or you know, was there maybe something <laughs> more than the community that you grew up a part of and, and, and viewed, or, or was that something where you just you just Showed up on Brown's campus one day, and were like, "What in the world did I just do?"
1: Well, I mean, th- that was kind of true, <laughs> um, but I I didn't really even know much about Brown. You know, it was very flukish the way I got there. Um, I I did grow up in a small town, and I grew up in a kind of immersive universe where everybody, you know, everybody went to church, and they went to the same church, and they went to the same school, and I hadn't traveled very much. Or associated myself very much with h- having anything to do with the outside world, um, but I did. As I as I got older, I, I I had this sense of the world out there as this great black, this great vast black hole, mm-hmm. and um, I think for much of my childhood, I wasn't really all that interested in it. But as I got older, I I kind of had this longing for it, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, I didn't have much imagination at all about the world outside, but then I just kind of leapt into it.
0: Hmm. Was your parents and your your grandparents were they supportive during that that transition, or were they like, "Well, good luck"?
1: <laughs> <laughs> My grandfather, the Southern Baptist preacher, was, I think, pretty dismayed <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> because the I was going so far away and I was going to the godless north, and you know, for him, I was just throwing myself at peril. Um, and he had a second grade education, so I'm sure there was some part of him that was um you know happy that I was being educated, but he didn't really know the value of education. Yeah. Um, my parents, I think ultimately when they like read up on Brown were you know, there was a certain amount of pride, but not too much. I mean they weren't that <laughs> impressed with me or with or with themselves. Um, they didn't buy the sweatshirt. They did not buy the okay. sweatshirt. Exactly. <laughs> It, I had never thought about that. It's true, but it, it, it holds so much significance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, how does your how does your awesome personal story you know the Southern Baptist upbringing, the Brown years, and your work in in communist Germany, studying theology at Yale how does that combination impact and influence the way that you interview guests, which has become really something that people study and people know about? How has all of that influenced the way you? converse with with people on your show
1: well see that's a good question you just asked because it's making me think about it in a way that i hadn't quite put together before (laughs) i mean i think one thing about my background is and you know it was a mixture of i guess being kind of crazy and kind of brave and also being in the right place at the right time a lot um so, you know, between my childhood and in my childhood and through my 20s, I, I lived in a small town in Oklahoma. I went to Brown. I went to divided Berlin. I went to East Germany before when it was still communist. And I think one thing that I got out of that experience is that I really understood that that in the world there are many worlds. Mm. <laughs> and that right and that that, that there are these complete complete universes with worldviews and cultures and vocabulary and expectations and imagination and horizons. And within each of them, you know, um, it's very hard to imagine the others. It's very hard to think your way into the others. But I, I I think I did enough hopping around like that to these little self-contained worlds, um, which, you know, had varying degrees of importance on the, on the world beyond them. Um, that I got kind of fascinated by that and, and I, I respected that. Hmm. Um, and I, and I suppose that now, I mean, I interview many different kinds of people. I'm, I interview physicists and I, I know nothing about physics <laughs> or, or you know, people from many places. And, uh, but I think I always know that I'm not, I'm not just coming at a life story. I'm coming at a, at a complete world. And hmm. I think having a certain reverence and, and in, in interest in the fact that um you know the minute you s- you step towards another person's story the minute you enter c- into conversation with them that you do kind of step step onto a new planet hmm. and be curious about that and and to honor um you know to not not be as not be daunted as much as intrigued by how much there is to learn there
0: yeah so I'm, I'm sure the longer you do this type of work, I mean, how do you choose which planet to, to step on? I mean, how do you, you've, you've met like the most interesting people and you've at the intersection of, of wisdom and culture and religion. How do you choose who to interview? What, what makes you go, we've got to give that person a microphone. We have to give that person a platform.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I can tell you, it's not a scientific process. And I used to worry about that. I used to feel like we should have this, this template. And, um, and there is there is some structure around it. Um, I mean, I have, you know, we we have staff at 12 here now. Um, my senior producer and senior editor and I are kind of the core people who make that decision, although everybody gets involved to some extent. And about every three months, we sit down and kind of map out a vision for um, who we think we might interview in the next three to six months, what topics we want to get into. Sometimes we, we, you know, we know there's a subject and so then we have to go find the person. Mm. So it goes those different ways. And, but I've had a long list uh, that is, that is still in the world and still being added to since the early 2000s when I started this. So so, you know, that list has just continued to grow, and it would probably look unwieldy to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's still, you know, I'm, we are always drawing on that list, and we're all also adding new names to it. And then sometimes um, an idea presents itself, or a name that we've had for a long time um, suddenly seems really relevant to the moment, and so we will, you know, some, sometimes this happens very slowly, and sometimes it happens quickly. Yeah. I don't know, I really can't explain it. Yeah.
0: So, throughout your research and throughout your journalism, what what are some of the I I'm curious like what are some of the spiritual axioms and practices that have become important to you in your life having you know having the 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 privilege of just drawing from so many stories and so many accounts, what ha, have you adopted any of those and said, you know, I'm actually going to to do this myself?
1: <laughs> um you mean in terms of a religious identity, or 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 just specific practices? Yeah,
0: just pre- specific practices. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, I mean, I say, you know, I say Christianity is my mother tongue and homeland, <laughs> and and that that hasn't changed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but how that manifests, you know, yeah. how, how deeply I'm living with that is is different at different points in my life. Um, uh, you know, there was a time for several years when. Every night before bed I read um, from the Compline, um, which is a, a, from the monastic order, yeah. the service of Compline, which is kind of ending the day. And I just found that it's very poetic language, it's very old language, um, and I just I found that so meaningful and just exactly what I needed. Um, and then, you know, I can't say when I stopped doing that, um, I... I am a reader, right? I love words like you, so so I usually have some kind of text, and that has changed a lot over the years. Again, it some once it you know it was at one point the Book of Common Prayer, and and now it might be some poetry or Pema Chodron's books, uh, uh, the Buddhist teacher. I really her her book When Things Fall Apart, mm-hmm. which I think is you know the way things are most of the time. <laughs> Um, I find just a lot, just wisdom that I can dip into and even just read a page or two. Um, I also, um, one of the big, big things I've learned that, that you know, that is reflected in the book, because afterwards comes the body, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I have become less and less convinced that there's any such thing as, uh, you know, mere spirituality. Uh, and I think on our on our scientific frontiers, and on our, our medical frontiers, and even on our spiritual frontiers, we're we're just learning how these things we separated out as mind, body, and spirit are so intertwined, yeah. so so interactive, um, and uh, you know that 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 was really that's an artificial that's kind of the limits of our imagination. Yeah. So, so I, I, I do a lot of yoga at this point in my life. Now, I don't do an especially spiritual practice of yoga, mm-hmm. but I experience um, just getting out of my head and into my body. But it, isn't
0: my that, it, even in itself, we kind of have to qualify it, right? Well, it's not a spiritual practice, but it's physical, but yet it's all combined. <laughs> it is.
1: Yeah, it is absolutely, getting, <laughs> getting grounded in my body, um, feeling it, yep. and... Uh, is is spiritual? It is good for me spiritually, and I think you know so many people are. We're creating, we're recreating that that unity. You know, whether it's CrossFit or running, or you know, it's in so many ways. Just gardening. Um, I think we're you know whether people are connected to relig- a religious tradition or not. Even if they are, they're often supplementing with some physical activity because we're understanding that that somehow this is also part of our spiritual health. So I would say that's where I've put a lot of my um, energy in recent years. And I don't know, I also think that as I get older, I just, I understand so many of the elemental things of life as spiritual practice, like, you know, how I am with my children and, um, you know, cooking a meal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and that's a, that's a lovely thing about about getting older. I think you, you get more appreciative of those ordinary things. Yeah.
0: The extraordinary sort of dwelling in the ordinary, dwelling in the, yeah. the, the mundane or yeah. the things that we would say are mundane, but really aren't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's, if we can, I'd love to just to dive into that whole concept a bit more. Like one one of the things I love about your show, and it's it's deeply reflected in this book, is how you seamlessly blended this, this almost, and you talked about it, this imaginary divide. Most of us grew up with between Art and science, you know, data and wonder. And I, I remember personally just being like completely, completely bored in high school during science class. But really, <laughs> I mean, really loving English and history. and For the longest time, I just sort of accepted that I found one more interesting than the other. But but what I realized, and, and honestly, I'm a little embarrassed to say, but through, through listening to your show and reading your book, you know, for the first time, I was just never taught the why when right. it came to science, you know, I how right. each of the disciplines are, are really after that same goal. Like what, what in the world are we doing here <laughs> is, is pretty much the thing. So the poet and the accountant aren't so different. The pastor and the scientist are both in their own way, kind of stewarding and shepherding. So a thank you. Thank you for doing that. Cause I think that's, that's just a huge value and, and, and b how can we begin to foster that definition that we're that we're all on the same team more as a culture how how do we how do we do that
1: well i you know I do feel like um I do feel like we're moving in that direction good right I think that even in the last five or ten years when say ten years ago, when I used to have scientists on the show um they would often make this some version of this same impassioned plea. You know, they'd say, "Science is a human discipline, um, and we should celebrate it like we celebrate our d- other disciplines, like the arts or religion." Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it was a case they felt they had to make, and and I and I do feel like you know things like the Hubble Telescope um, have kind of brought. The beauty of the cosmos, mm. you know, into our living rooms, onto our desktop <laughs> savers, <laughs> um, and and so we, you know, I think there are many ways that 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 ordinary people are connecting, being connected, or, or you know, there's there's some sharing going on also from that scientific end of what they do and what they're learning and what they're discovering. Um, you know, TED talks are another way that gets out there. <laughs> it's happening on my show. What, you know, and I, I really feel like that, that, that argument that I think scientists felt they had to make a few years ago um, it is less true. It's, you know, somehow what, what is being learned on scientific frontiers is infiltrating our lives in new ways. And even the way we are so joined at the hip with our technologies and, you know, we don't, we don't stop to think that often yeah. about the science behind them. But I, I still I think it brings an awareness um of of that of the practicality um and really the gift of science um, so yeah i and but i and i do and i feel and you know what's interesting to me also is to see that in this century physicists and cosmologists and neuroscientists are actually walking on ground that i think was pretty much reserved for theologians and philosophers previously, you know, hmm. they, they are really more overtly, whether they meant to be walking this direction or not, they are, they are overtly um, asking, you know, making insights, making discoveries that, that reflect on these great questions of what it means to be human, like yeah. who we are and what we're made of and where we came from and where we're going and even the questions of, you know, how much choice we have to be who we are and things like that, you know, end up echoing, again, whether the scientists meant it to be this way or not, end up echoing back at notions of, you know, great theological conundrum like free will and, and uh, you know, redemption. And I just, I think that is so fascinating. So, Um, In recent generations, and at various times in history, in pretty recent history, I mean, it didn't happen before the last couple hundred years. But there are very famous fights between science and religion.
0: I'm not. I'm not aware Uh, of any of those. I don't
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and you know, some of that is still going on, right? Right. There's still some of that. But what I see also happening, and more robustly, maybe not quite so loudly, so it's not getting all the play in the press. But you know, more robustly, there is this new companionship, this conversation, um, on on these beautiful, gentle, mysterious uh, questions of who we are, uh, and I and I and I also think that just what we're learning in general about our bodies and brains and about the world, um, especially the new generations coming up, I just think that we are ha- have access. To a sense of ourselves in our fullness hmm. uh, and that includes um, what what science is teaching us about ourselves as well as what our spiritual traditions may teach us, hmm. um, what we teach each other um, And I think that, that that sense of the fullness of ourselves is a real is a real form of power.
0: Hmm. I mean, I've got I've got a little kid at home. I've got a two-year-old, and I always joke with my wife that because things are so, you know, messy and kind of up in the air with the education system right now, yeah. When she reaches grade school, I really just want her to do two things: watch TED Talks and listen to On Being, and report back to me. I'll turn a blind eye to the D's and the F's. She gets in class, but she's just got to do those two things: just listen to Krista, <laughs> listen to Ted. You talk about your kids a lot, and I'm curious, how does all this research and work inform the way you parent your kids?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think at times I have overtly used my interviews as <laughs> <community> sessions. <laughs> there are a couple of shows I did across the years, like the one with Sylvia Borstein called What We Nurture. Yeah. And also the conversation I had with Brene Brown a few years ago. Um, um she she's so much about i mean she's also working coming from a scientific perspective but working on kind of one of these one of these times when we become wise by rediscovering things we knew forever and then forgot yeah exactly. like we're vulnerable right <laughs> like, like life is actually not about a, a, any kind of great guarantee that everything will go our way um and but the good news is that um that in fact, you know, as Brene Brown says, and she's studied this, like it is—it is in those moments, um, when things go wrong, when when we walk through something we did not know, we did not weren't sure we could get through, and we come out the other side. That the, these moments actually make us who we are. Mm-hmm. That courage and hope are born of struggle, and of and of and by of an experience, uh, again and again. That that we that we can walk through that struggle and not just not just get through it, but kind of integrate it into our strength. And um, when I had that conversation with her a few years ago, you know, she she talked about the last few generations of parenting, of which I'm a part, where, I don't know, I think partly out of guilt because we were all working so hard uh, and kind of the post post-feminist generation where you had this idea that you could do everything, but in fact none of the structures yeah. <laughs> in, fact, not true. in fact it was a lie um, so everybody's f- figuring this out and all we're all all feeling like you're failing um, and and so part of part of what we you know we invented quality time and we kind of set out to create this you know as perfect an experience of childhood as we could for our children mm-hmm. and in fact that doesn't necessarily make them for great people to take. To go out <laughs> It is so. That was a really you know. So so, so you know. Those are a couple of moments. Um, and with the thing that Sylvia Borstein, I'll share that that one was so important for me too in my own parenting because she, 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 she delivered this uh, this truth, which is hard to take in as a parent, especially when you're trying so hard to do such a good job. <laughs> um, she said, you know, our children really are not listening to us. Mm. Um, you know, of course, if you say, uh, eat your dinner or you don't have dessert, you know, they listen to you.
0: But- I'm glad yours do. Mine does okay. not, but that's <laughs> okay. fantastic.
1: She said, they're not, they're really not listening to us, but they are always, always watching us to a much greater extent than they realize or than we realize. Yeah. And so, but part of the the good news that came out of that um, insight is that is that when we and impar- as parents invest in our own spiritual health, in our own, you know, resilience and courage and character, we're not short-chain, You know, we're doing something for our children as well. Mm. Uh, so I I liked that. So there, you know, there yeah, there have been some cathartic moments.
0: That's really good. That's really good. Uh, so and forgive this long question, but I think this is so important. So so this book. And honestly, everything you're you're doing has come smack dab at the center of a time where <laughs> – you know where I'm going with this. Um, well, I'll personalize it. My cynicism has been at an all-time high. And 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 this is one of the few instances where I feel permission to like generalize a bit for my generation and say that I'm not the only one. I've had a lot of conversations with people. My age, who who grew up religious, hold on to uh, you know certain rituals and values, but are just so dang tired of these oversimplified narratives and really like you know conflict laden journalism. I, I think here comes you and this book and this tribe of people that you're giving a microphone to, and all of a sudden there's hope. <laughs> there's hope for it. you. You mentioned in the book. On, uh, on the section of love, which I think is really interesting that you, you added this interview in the section about love. One of my favorite people, she's been a guest on this podcast too, Sister Simone Campbell, yes. the, the kick-ass nun, right? Who
1: <laughs> <laughs> the lawyer, yeah, who, the lawyer.
0: who lobbies yeah. for the rights and the marg- uh, rights of the poor and the marginalized in Washington. And you recount this really amazing situation. I remember when I listened to, to your podcast with her for the first time where, where Paul Ryan actually defends her in Congress. Yeah even though they disagree really profoundly on a bunch of things. And I, I don't know, did you see when Paul Ryan did the whole thing with the press release with the interns a couple of weeks ago where he said, I used to call people makers or, and takers, but I i realized I was wrong?
1: No, no, I didn't see he that. He said
0: that. He did this whole thing like right in the middle of the whole you know, Trump thing, and he was like, okay, we got to bring the Republican Party back. And so he said, I, I used to say there were makers and takers, and I've realized now that that was wrong of me. And so he was kind of trying it to... to you know, clear some sort of path forward, but I I watched that and I listened to. That and I said, "That's actually a direct result, I bet, of of their friendship." But anyway, it's just uh-huh. cool to see that that stuff that she's doing is actually making a genuine, genuine change. But, but the whole point.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and we never we don't, we wouldn't hear we don't hear about those moments. That's my
0: question for you, though. That yeah,
1: doesn't get covered. That's
0: my question for you. We hear about those moments through you in your journalism, but. How do we multiply you? <laughs> how do we or how do we multiply this kind of journalism, where where we celebrate progress and we celebrate collaboration and different viewpoints, learning how to work together, versus you know I don't know, perpetuating perpetuating the same polarizing you know nonsense that's really dominating our current election cycle. Just you know as an example.
1: But you know it's it's so it's so often true in life that. That what we what we most deeply long for we we actually not only are capable of but are already doing in some way. Hmm. We just have to notice it. And and I would say that right now about you because you you are you you know you are my comrade. <laughs> <laughs> you are doing this, and so I, but so you know one thing that people have said um, to us about the show from the very beginning, and probably the thing that makes me happiest of all and I think you just said it in your way is you know I listen to this show and I feel less alone
0: mm.
1: and what that's about is you know there's such an abundance of good people in the world uh, leading lives that are worthy and intentional and, and and not a single one of them perfect and not mine and not yours right mm-hmm. uh, lots of flaws and failings and false turns but but you know that's because we're breathing but <laughs> There's, but there's so much goodness and there's so much beauty, and but we don't shine a light on it, and um, journalism doesn't shine a light on it. It's not. It's it doesn't become part of the official narrative of the you know the story we tell of our time right now. That story is dominated by a really bizarre and discouraging presidential election, right. which is which is the place traditionally where we we would be looking um, for for guidance, for inspiration, for, for the model of, 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 you know, moving forward. Um, but the truth is that, that it was, it was all, it's always up to us to create new realities and, and somehow the kind of bizarre dynamics of this moment, um, uh, you know, I feel like there may be a paradox about globalization and the kind of intense you know, hyper connectedness of the world right now. Mm. That that rather than that that in fact what is particular and local and personal becomes amplified in its importance and amplified in its potential impact. And that the you know, that those places where we've looked to lead us forward are the most dysfunctional and broken. And we can take this on. I mean it's 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 not fun and it's it's scary. Um, that's why we have to be companions to each other. Um, but we can take this moment on as a gift and a calling and a challenge to to start to start being, you know what is that? I, I think this one's been on too many bumper stickers, and I don't even know if Gandhi said it to you know be the team <laughs> you want to see in the world. Right. but but what Jean Vanier, who's a big feature, you know, character in my book, um, the founder of L'Arche, um, this Canadian philosopher, you know, he he, he paraphrased Gandhi this way. And, and I think he was talking about the same quote, but just by putting it in different words, he, uh, to me, brought that phrase to life again. He said, you know, I can't change the world. And I think that a lot of us grew up certainly, being born in the 1960s, grew up thinking that our mission is to change the world. Yeah.
0: No, that's a millennial yeah. thing too, you yeah. know, like, well,
1: but that breeds cynicism. If you don't internalize it, if you internalize it in the wrong way, right. but you know, Jean Bagnier said is I can't change the world. I can change myself. That's good. And that the changing of the world begins there. And I, I actually feel like millennials get that. I feel like there is a commitment to reality. Um, there's a pragmatism. Um, there's an honesty yeah. about the messiness of this enterprise that that your parents and grandparents didn't have or didn't 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 own up to. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I I you know I feel like in your question is also the its answer. I mean you are doing it, but we have to believe we have to take ourselves seriously, right? We have to believe that even. These efforts that we're doing, and 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 work that other, you know, we all have these heroes in our lives, these role models, these people we look at who so amaze us, and we're so inspired by. Um, we have to we have to let that count as much as we let count the the terrible story of corruption and devastation and damage that we're going to get a hundred times in our email inbox today. That's great, right? Yep.
0: Yeah, it's easier to amplify the things that are wrong than take a look at the, the people and the folks in our lives that are actually doing a pretty good job and are are trying underneath the yeah. whole umbrella of, and I like, it, I like how you said this, we're all flawed because we have breath or we breathe. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to put that. Um, well, I'd love to just turn one more corner and, and talk a little bit about something I heard you say once, and I think it strikes a chord with where we're at as a culture there's a shift from you know when my grandfather who punched in and punched out of a job came home drank a beer mowed the lawn and was really happy just to do that or at least to, you know appeared that way to i've got to totally be completely filled for, or fulfilled in my work right and my <laughs> calling, I, this has to be the end all the be all and and you said something when you were answering the last question about calling and you say that there's a difference between vocation and a job title, and I love because I think there's so much kind of talk about this. But I love if you can bring some some amount of clarity to our listeners because I think that's something that we all really struggle with.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, not only not only will will people never again kind of you know have the job offer like your grandfather did. Right, we, we have to. You know we we have both the opportunity and the burden of inventing ourselves, right? Crafting our lives with with hardly any ground rules. Mm. You know, depending on how much support you have in that can be a really exciting thing. Um, but it's stressful and it's not really the way um, it's not really the way we're hardwired mm. to, to, to be inventing and, 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 and creating. So, so just that. so that's where we start. Um, and then, And then there is living in this, you know, this post-2008 world where um, it's just not at all clear what the job paths are. Right. It's not at all clear what... um,
0: (laughs) There's a huge chasm between Starbucks and, like, Internet startup. And, yeah, it's just there's huge gaps.
1: And so so once again, I feel that this is um, something that we get to honor as... uh, Disappointing, uh, <laughs> some level, dismaying, and um, and frightening, um, but also I think it calls us back. You know, it was never, it wasn't actually good. I, I'm going to say this in a sweeping way: uh, for your grandfather or my grandfather to be so defined, mm. to understand themselves as so defined by the job they held. Yeah and um uh it, it may have been enough in that era but i, I we we know we know too much now um this this whole this whole thing we were we were talking about a little while ago about how we we have a sense of our fullness that they did not have yeah. um and we also have longer lives in which we know that there's going to be lots of change i i think vocation is um it's a wonderful word. I'd really like to revive it, mm. but but one thing we have to do is stop. So I think one thing that happened to the word vocation is that it became um, narrowly equated with yeah with your career path and your job title, um, and 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 then and then the other thing we've been doing yeah well so I'll just say that so so but but I vocation you know is is your calling and And it's your calling as a whole human being, so i I think your vocation um it may have a lot to do with the job you do. Yes. it It may be more about how you do the work you do. Mm. Um, it i I want to think that our that our vocations as um partners in life and love, you know, our vocations as spouses, as parents, as neighbors, as people who also follow, pursue passions that we're not getting paid to do, yep. um, that all of this. And I also think in the course of any life, you know, I, I definitely look at my life and I think there were years where my most important vocation was, was as a parent, right? Yeah. I mean, it just was. And, and the rest of it I was doing to make that work, to support that. And that is, has, is so honorable, right but we we ha- and that's just also the way life works but we need to we need to internalize this right we need to like reflect on this and 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 um and i and i think another reason that that just becomes urgent and critical is because um I, i'm very uncomfortable with uh the idea that, that you know there's all this language which you you were kind of getting kind of getting at about having meaningful work and purposeful mm-hmm. work i mean there's still a we're still a bit captive to this i mean i i hear people saying things like um you know, follow your dream. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the life you want right now.
1: Yep. Right. Or you should be doing the most meaningful thing you can yeah. find. Well, well sure. <laughs> sure. If you can. Um, and and I say that as somebody who um, is very privileged to be actually doing something that is inherently meaningful. Sure. Now, what I want to say is I fought very hard for this and worked very hard for it. And... And even I, I mean I get really nervous when people over romanticize my job right. because because the pieces the, you know there's there's this small percentage of my time <laughs> people say oh you get to spend all your time having these beautiful conversations <laughs> but that's a fraction of my time yeah. and 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 my job like any job is a job there's a huge amount of admin there's a you know there's office politics there's raising money there's you know there's the organizational work. Um, that goes with it. And I think a lot of people find that meaning and purpose in things that they're not getting paid for. And I, and I think it's so important that we start to honor that for ourselves and for others as, as their vocation as well, you know, as well, or, or instead of the work.
0: Gosh, I just think there's, there's so much pressure in that,
1: Mm.
0: you know, do, do work that you're passionate about, even if you don't get paid for it, because we see, I think what, what social media has done, and, and in many ways, just a great in a great way, but you see these people who started out doing these passion projects, and all of a sudden, it becomes this this, well, if-then kind of thing, where it's like, you know, you do a passion project, or you do something just for the love of it, and all of a sudden, you've got 10 gazillion YouTube followers, yeah. and are doing a world tour, you know, talking about your YouTube show, so to me, that almost doesn't even seem, and maybe it's just the way I'm wired, but you know, I can start something and I just go, hey, this is just, this is just because I'm passionate about this. But then again, it's like, well, should I be, there's almost that, that pressure of like, should I be cultivating this with my time when I can actually be doing something that uh, produces something? There's, we, we still, and I, again, I don't think I'm alone in, in this, but I, I, we're still sort of in that producer mode. We still have to answer that question well, what do you do? And I think that question is so weird. It's like, not what do you do for a living? What you go to a party? It's like, what do you do? Why do, what do you? Uh, how do you produce things? Like,
1: it's an American question. It's
0: very yeah.
1: You're right, and and then the other thing is, we all know that out of all the people who start a YouTube channel or start a passion project, who then suddenly have a million followers, <laughs> that is just this right. tiny sliver. And it's not necessarily yep. the best stuff. it's just it's just you know whatever happened to be touched by fate. hmm so we can't you know we can't let that be another uh path that discourages us and makes us feel like we're failing.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I have one more question. This is the Sounds like a Movement podcast, and I'd be remiss in asking you since you've interviewed so many leaders of movements from Black Lives Matter to Occupy Wall Street to the nuns on the bus, which, again, I think that's my favorite. How do movements effectively change culture, in your opinion, through all the stuff that you've seen? Have you seen any patterns or themes of how movements actually create the change that they want to see?
1: I think we are living in such an interesting moment where we're, like about so so many other forms that have been handed down to us, I think, you know the question of of what what a movement is, and how social change happens. Um, I think yeah. you know in this generation we are we are remaking those things, and so right now, um, and this is probably t- too simple, but but there there was kind of a model of a movement. I mean, you probably thought about this more than I have. That there's kind of a model of the movement that came down from the '60s, which which entails sure. charismatic leaders and large numbers of people on the streets. And uh, I, you know, that, there is certainly still a place for that, but I, 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 we, one thing we forget is, you know, that the civil rights movement, for example, started in the early fifties, right? It was it was 10, 12 mm-hmm. years before all the, and there were all these chapters in that movement and 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 they were they were I mean I mean chap yeah chapters of the movement um, narratives of the movement that, that took place in one locality yeah. or another um, this action yeah. that action um, many leaders whose names we don't remember um, and yeah. and then we and then we had that incredible flowering that you know changed the world um, but but the were but they've been changing the world right they've been tilling the soil
0: yes. On the yeah. shoulders of giants, um, yeah.
1: So that's actually – so one of the one of the interesting things for me has been, like, the conversation I had – I don't know if you heard my conversation with John Lewis, who, I, who the, the civil rights. And to really talk to him about, in fact, history I did not know. Um, the the disciplines that were involved in, in the, the practice of nonviolence, which I think we've kind of come to think of as a, a withholding of violence. Mm-hmm. When in fact, you know, nonviolence was a way of being present,
0: proactive. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it was yeah. so. So yes, and uh, and but it was it was a spiritual confrontation with yourself, and then with the world outside. And and they spent weeks and weeks before any sit-in, you know, doing role play hmm. and imagining themselves in the other person's shoes, even if that other person was this a, a white policeman who was beating you, who wanted you dead, yeah. and it was practicing that you would not you would not strike back because you loved them. I mean this was incredible the depth of this. So so part of so so you know so part of the answer to what i've learned is to to really be interested in the <laughs> the, the granular you know the yeah. inner and also all the movement that comes before the movement that we see on the surface. That's good. Um, and then i do you know look looking at the difference between black lives matter and and the civil rights movement i mean a movement that starts with a hashtag um, and that has a very, dis- I mean, there are leaders of Black Lives Matter, but it's not the, you know, it's not the charismatic leader on high. I mean, p- and people don't even necessarily know the names of, yeah. and they were women, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> of these women. Um, um, and of course, that movement also is trying to figure out what it means to be a movement. Mm. Uh, it's had, inc- it's changed, it has changed us. Um, but it's a very young, nascent thing. And so, so they're like walking this ground of, of figuring out what this means and, and what the next stage looks like. Um, uh, I, there's a, there's an image that I, that I write about in the book that is, um, is really pivotal for me. It's, um, from John Paul Lederach, who is a, is a peacemaker and has been involved in, um, you know, again, these kinds of movements that may not have made history, but where, where lives have been changed, where, where, where conflicts that were entrenched have been transformed. Um, he was really involved in, um, in the peace agreements in Northern Ireland. Um, and what he talks about is he says that the kind of social change and movement that we focus on is, um, often has to do with critical mass Mm. And it, that when we measure our own efforts, we often think in terms of critical mass, right? If we can just achieve that critical mass, then yep. this really means something. But he says that in his experience, all over the world, and from from really again knowing the innards of, of, of many <laughs> places where, where 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 there has been um, enduring social change, um, what is what is as vital is what he calls critical yeast,
0: mm. and that I that love is, that.
1: Right. And that is there both before the masses of the bodies are on the streets. And it's also there in the aftermath, because what, you know, that model of social movement, which is absolutely disruptive and massive, it is about overturning structures that need to be overturned. But it's not necessarily, well, it's not really about, it's not the, the, the different work, the related but different work of creating the new reality. And and the creation of the new reality um, comes from critical yeast, which is, as Jean-Paul Lederach says, it's it's unlikely combinations of people, people people who who come together um, who would not have come together before, but right. who, who who are who are called by a a kindred awareness that things can't continue as they are. You know, whatever whatever that is, whatever those circumstances are, and and that they create a quality of relationship, uh, and that they begin to envision and create new realities at a human scale, and that becomes um, infectious, and and so I, I think that that um, and you know one of the great gifts and really kind of a paradox of the internet is that it it makes um, it kind of lifts up what is local and particular and personal in a new way. I mean, yep. as never before, you can start something in your neighborhood, in your school, in your city, and you can incubate something new and you can send out what you want hmm. to the rest of the world. Um, so I don't know. I hope I answered your question. You I did.
0: No, I absolutely.
1: And I think that, I guess what the part of the of the of the the notion of social change that that interests me is is focusing on the human change that makes social change possible. And I think we want to leap over we want to leap over that. You know, we just want to we want to <laughs> come up with a plan and an agenda. and and Americans, we're so we're so action oriented. yeah, um, but I think one thing I've learned over and over again, both from talking to people who've been part of something like the civil rights movement and you know other people who've worked in many other places in the world um, and who have created kind of um, movements is is that you know that yeah that there that there is where there is really enduring transformation, there is a profound attention to inner life. Hmm. And to Integrity to an integrity between inner life and outer action. Um,
0: It really goes back to parenting, again, that that model of parenting. It goes
1: back to parenting.
0: (laughs) Just parenting and stewarding.
1: Yeah, so that you want to change your world, you change yourself. Yeah. And that may be harder, and and it's a necessary part of the process. And it may be harder or just as hard, but on the other hand, it is available to us.
0: So good. I have to say, you know, we, we often confuse symphonies with with movements
1: mm.
0: movements are these unique aspects little little sections of, of a symphony and maybe oh. we're just called
1: oh that's so wonderful you know what i mean
0: like to, to yeah. just be part of the movement and play our part and combine with the symphony but oftentimes we're so focused on the end result and the big picture that we forget so so really any individual's movement somebody who has life and breath you know yeah. in their lungs and wants to do something as a movement. So I love that. I love the And I love how you just pull different stories and different interviews to to basically, you know, prove that that point. That's really special. Um, thank you, thank you for your your words in 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 book form. You know this this new book, this latest book, becoming wise. Uh, incredible. Thanks for for your time. Um, yeah, we're all we're all big Krista Tippett fans. <laughs> we really are. And. <laughs>
1: thank you i have really enjoyed this and you know we're all we're working in the same sphere i mean i guess what's so redemptive for us as human beings about a movement is that is that it does we we we're not alone right Mm -hmm. yeah um and i and i and i think you know that's also part of the work and even in this moment where so many of us are igniting you know, we've we've got these little incubators of change all over the place. We're you know doing whatever our thing is, yeah. um, and I think for the challenge for us is also to to not be alone with that, to 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 accompany each other, to to just you know to cross pollinate and cross fertilize and all of those good things, but also to be there for each other, um, and we we will be better. We will be better for that.
0: My thanks to my guest, the remarkable Krista Tippett. Wow, please go pick up Becoming Wise and Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living on Amazon or wherever books are sold. If you haven't yet, subscribed to the On Being Podcast. That is just crazy. What are you doing listening to this podcast? Go and subscribe to the On Being Podcast. Krista has a new podcast too that complements the book. It's also called Becoming Wise, so go subscribe to that as well. My favorite insight from Krista, what's so redemptive for us as human beings about a movement is that it shows us we're not alone. Thanks for listening. You are a movement and we'll see you next time.